Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, wellstarthealth.com, and with Josh Lajani, the co-author of Sick to Fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a passionate and persuasive life. Today's guest is Caroline Trapp Dnup. DNP, that's a doctor of nursing practice to you and me. She is the director of diabetes education and care with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, PCRM, or PCRM, as well as a nurse practitioner with Premier Internists in Southfield, Michigan. And Caroline Trapp is a passionate advocate for the role of nurses in educating and empowering patients in self-administering lifestyle medicine to combat chronic disease, particularly diabetes. She points out that the founder of modern science-based nursing, Florence Nightingale, included two chapters on nutrition in her book, Notes on Nursing, and that nurses are the largest workforce in healthcare, plus they're experts in patient education, which means they're really the ideal profession, not doctors, not dietitians, but nurses to carry the message of plant-based healing of disease into medical practices and hospitals. So in our conversation, we talk about how nurses can begin to make a difference on a much bigger scale. We also talk about her work with the Diné Nation, the Navajo Nation, um, helping them reclaim their dietary heritage, uh, which is much more about growing plants than eating lots of meat and fry bread. Before we jump into the conversation, a couple of announcements. First of all, the book Sick to Fit by Josh Lajani and myself is available for free on the Amazon Kindle store. It's also available for free at Barnes & Noble, Smashwords.com, Kobo.com. And if you don't have any sort of e-reader, uh, you can download a PDF for absolutely free at sick2.fit. Did you know that .fit is a domain name like .com and .org and .biz? I didn't until I looked it up, but it is. And sick2.fit is where you can give us your email address and we'll send you that PDF. Also, you can go there after you've downloaded the Kindle book and you can get a whole bunch of bonuses that we couldn't fit into a book like audios and videos and color photos and stuff like that. Plus, we have a private Facebook group for community and support for people who want to go from sick to fit. Now, obviously, our strategy of making it free 
is designed to get it into as many hands as possible. So we would love your help in letting people know. There will be, hopefully, crossing my fingers in three days, the opportunity to purchase a paperback, which you can actually give as a physical gift. But for now, I would love it if you would go download the book, share it with friends, and leave us uh, an Amazon review. Apparently, reviews are huge in determining where a book goes on the Amazon listings. And so the more good reviews we get, the higher it goes and the more people can discover it for themselves. Thanks in advance. Second announcement is WellStart Health is starting a new cohort on January 7th of 12 weeks of a virtual health retreat or the on-ramp to health, as I like to think of it, led by me, led by Josh Lajani and our other coaches. So you can go to wellstarthealth.com slash program to find out more and to apply. All right, let's podcast. So without further ado, Caroline Trapp, DNP, Doctor of Nursing Practice, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much, Howard. I am honored to be talking to you. Well, let's let's get all the good stuff out there. Um, let's let's start by um, you just you know introducing yourself, telling folks uh, who you are and what you're up to. Sure. So, I am a nurse practitioner um, in adult primary care. I'm a certified diabetes educator. Um, I have been in the the world of nursing now for uh, 25 years, I think. Um, and when I decided to go to nursing school, I had no idea how many fun things I get to do with that degree. So I hold, I wear a couple of different hats professionally. Um, I'm a nurse practitioner with an internal medicine group in Michigan, and I've worked with that group for more than 20 years now. Um, about 12 years ago, I cut my time with them down to just one day a week, and I took a position with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and I'm the Director of Diabetes Education and Care with the Physicians Committee. Great. So... When you went into nursing 25 years ago, were you plant-based or convinced about the impact of diet on disease? Or did, did like, where, where did, where did you get uh, educated yeah, or, or ambushed so, about that? Well, it, it really wasn't part of my nursing program. Um, my, we did, we did get a semester at the University of Michigan. We got a semester in nutrition. And I will say it was a really interesting class. And in fact, that's the first time I had ever tried tofu. I remember Dr. Ninfa Springer was the professor. And I remember her bringing, I don't know, an eggless egg salad to, <laughs> to class one day. But I have to say that class was at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I lived on the other side of campus and Michigan in the winter is cold. And I can't remember it being my favorite class just because of the time of the day and having to get there and everything, but I'd always had an interest. And in fact, when I was at U of M, I lived in a uh, co-op my second year of school and um, they cooked vegetarian meals. And um, I remember being partnered with somebody who had a lot more experience cooking for groups than I did. And I learned to make some 
some vegetarian dishes while living in that co-op. And, you know, I always just sort of gravitated, I think, towards that idea of doing things a little differently, um, maybe kind of counterculture. You know, that it was that had an appeal for me, but it certainly wasn't about health at that time. It, it wasn't something I really understood as, as being necessary or, or important for health. And, and I don't remember it being taught in relation to all the chronic diseases that I learned about as, as being important, um, which isn't to say, you know, nurses definitely do get education in nutrition and, and it has... I understood that nutrition had an important role. I just didn't get plant-based nutrition Mm -hmm. until much later. Well, that sounds Um, very different from what I've heard from doctors about their own education, where nutrition didn't seem to be relevant at all to um, promoting or restoring health. You know, I will say that there is a great history with nurses and nutrition, um, in fact, I studied it as part of my doctorate. I was really interested in this. So Florence Nightingale, the mother of modern nursing, um, was actually a really remarkable individual. Um, she was the first to really apply the scientific method to caregiving. She kept statistics on on soldiers and the battlefields and, and you know took a good look at what helped people to heal. And she wrote a really important book called Notes on Nursing. And I think undergraduates are still required to read it. Um, 14 chapters long. And two of those chapters are on nutrition. So very different nutrition recommendations maybe than what we would suggest today. I do remember she talked about bone broth. (laughs) Um, She... Um, was also all about getting food to people. You know, back in the uh, 1800s, I guess was, was her time, um, nurses were responsible for preparing the meals in institutions and delivering the meals to people. And um, food used to be a really big focus of providing care. However, in the 1950s, the dietetics profession came along and nurses were, I think, happy to maybe relinquish that responsibility. And um, unfortunately, it's become something that now in hospitals, you know, every hospital is well staffed with dietitians and dietetic aides and nurses are so busy doing so many other things. But really, when you bring somebody their tray, when you help to make sure that they're eating enough or, or learn about what their food preferences are. Yeah, that's really a, an important part of healing. So, And there are so many more nurses than dietitians. So I really feel that talking about nutrition, being knowledgeable about nutrition, counseling on nutrition, that's a really important part of our role as nurses. Mm. And it doesn't matter where you're a nurse, you know, what setting, um, what people eat is probably really important. So we, we both know doctors who have been beating that drum, that doctors should be talking about lifestyle and nutrition. I was just at, at, at ACLM last week. You know, that's the the major theme of the whole conference and of the whole lifestyle medicine movement. And of course, most doctors are resistant. What do you find when you bring that message to nurses? Is there similar resistance or is there a more more openness 
to include lifestyle and nutrition in the care conversation? I find that nurses are really interested in it. I was at ACLM with you. Um, I was at a lunchtime meeting on Friday where um, I, I, it was minor, I was told there were 150 nurses, nurses and nurse practitioners at the conference. And there had to be at least a hundred of them at that meeting. And, you know, we're really interested. And I, and the same is true with the physician's committee conference. You know, we get a good turnout among nurses. Um, I have been invited to teach at local universities. I teach at the university of Michigan. I teach at Eastern um, Michigan university. I've taught at Wayne and I, and I'm invited to speak about diabetes, but I'm pleased to say that it, these schools, I've always been able to lobby for extra time so that I can talk about nutrition for diabetes in particular. Now, does my extra hour um, of of lecture make a difference in those programs? I don't know, but I had the great delight of being at a veg fest in Michigan this last April, and a former nursing nurse practitioner student came up to me and she's now been following a vegan diet for seven years and she's employed at a hospital doing staff education and she just um, wrote to me this week that she's gotten a job working with a physician who is um, a board uh, board certified by ACLM and is um, going to get to do this in practice so I it, a long answer to your your question, but yes, I definitely think nurses are receptive to this. Yes, it's really appropriate for nurses. We do get more education than doctors do, and and maybe it's more practical information too. You know, it's not just about IV nutrition. Um, it, it's more about how do you do a nutrition assessment? How how do we know that the people are are ad, eating adequately? Um, what kind of barriers do they have to to good eating? And um, we're experts in patient education, so you know, give us a topic, and we're we're good at at helping people learn about it and, and incorporate it into their life. So yeah, I think I think nurses and nutrition really go together well. And in fact, um, I had buttons printed this year for the physician committee's conference, our international conference. On nutrition and medicines held every summer, and we had a thousand people this year, and um, we created something called the Nurses Nutrition Network, and we're in the process of updating our our entire physicians committee website, so it will include a Nurses Nutrition Network page. But we made buttons that said "Nurses Heart Plant Based Nutrition," hmm. and and um, I printed 500 of them, and they all went. So we just printed more. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of interest. I think there were a lot of clinicians there, nurses who attended who wanted a button, but also taking them home for their nursing colleagues. Wow. So is is this like a secret way in to change the healthcare system? Because I've been focused largely on medical education on the doctors mm-hmm. and it's you know as it feels like you know mostly beating our head against the wall um i know that there have been sort of historic tensions between doctors and nurses um i'm thinking about the 
the whole checklist thing about getting doctors to wash their hands. And, you know, so very various, yeah. you know, and I, and this is all from the outside. So I don't know how much of this mm -hmm. is like, this is where the good story is, or this is the reality day to day of the power dynamics between doctors and nurses. But do you, do you think that, that nurses could be the secret ingredient to get nutrition and plant-based nutrition more specifically uh, front and center in, in patient care? Absolutely. You have, you have doubled upon the secret. So nurses are the largest workforce in healthcare and they absolutely um, could, could be the, the, profession that makes a difference. In fact, I kind of resent a little bit that, you know, doctors are taking this over. Um, and that's not to say that they shouldn't, um, but they also don't, in, in general practice, they don't have time to do this kind of counseling. Um, now that lifestyle medicine is becoming a specialty, um, they're, they're is recognition of the importance of nutrition in, in healthcare, and and for those who are certified, um, they will make nutrition an important part of their practice. But in terms of the you know larger medical profession, you know I'd love to see all doctors get more education about the importance of this. But then the the movement within healthcare is really around teams and interdisciplinary functioning and that patients with chronic diseases like diabetes really benefit from a team approach. You know, they should have a physician, they should have a nurse practitioner, they should have a dietitian, they may need a psychologist, they, um, it, it, an exercise physiologist. I mean, there's all these really important people who are parts of the team and we should all be talking about nutrition. Um, but I definitely think that there are two ways that nurses can make a big difference. The first is to do this themselves. And, and you know, before you can start talking to patients about it, it's really helpful if you yourself are an expert in eating plant-based. And unfortunately, nurses like the general population are sometimes not very healthy. And I was it, the honor of being invited to speak at the New Mexico Nurses Association conference last year, they did a whole day on self-care for nurses. Mm. And I see that, um, I, I just saw on Medscape, there was an article about um, sleep, adequate sleep and, and nursing and, it, you know, it, it shift workers, um, we often don't get enough sleep. So there's a lot of things around lifestyle that we as nurses could do a better job with and should be encouraged to do a better job with. And, you know, as I entered this part of my, this phase of my career, I, I think that that's really something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, nurses work really hard. Our, our education programs are challenging. Um, we, you know, we often have the burden that we're often women, we have the, the challenges of, of raising a family and, and, going to school or working full-time or, you know, all of those things. So um, self-care is so important. So I, I think that's one really important way that, that we can make a difference. And then the second thing is educating ourselves on how to best educate our patients uh, about plant-based nutrition. And until really recently, we, we are all self-educated in this, right? 
Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't there aren't programs. There there weren't programs um, devoted to plant based nutrition. So we all kind of had to figure this out. And you were part of that. You know, co-authoring books with Colin Campbell and and Garth Davis, and you know, having those resources out there are, are great. And the more that nurses can work to educate themselves and now take advantage of the programs that exist, the eCornell program, um, the um, American College of Lifestyle Medicine has a great education program. And and if I can just say, because I just found this out today, um, I passed the board. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a diplomat. Thank you very much. So um, that, you know, that this opportunity is now available to um, nurses and nurse practitioners and other healthcare professionals. That is a great educational program. Um, I thought, you know, I work for the physicians committee. I've been doing this work for a number of years, kind of had this, oh, I know a lot. I maybe don't know everything, but I know a lot. But I found um, the the textbook that ACLM produced to be really educational. I learned a lot, and and I loved it, and I loved the opportunity to to um, you know fine tune what I know and to also get into other aspects of lifestyle. So that's a great route for any nurse or nurse practitioner um, who wants to to really. Know, uh, expand upon their expertise around plant-based nutrition and then help their patients. So do you find that what's really helpful for, in terms of what nurses get from these courses is the nuts and bolts of the the content of how to eat and how to transition or maybe and or how to help people change behaviors and lifestyles? In other words, is is it the the content knowledge or more of coaching uh, abilities? Or do you think that coaching is another um, part of the interdisciplinary team that should be separate from from the nurses? Yeah. No, no, no. I, I think that um, it's, it's both of those. Those are both really important things. And I think that nurses already um, have coaching as, as within their skill set. Um, I... I know that was part of my undergraduate education at the University of Michigan. I know it's taught on the graduate level as well at U of M. I, I don't can't speak to other schools and, and what they're currently doing, but you know I think um, there's a big emphasis on patient education and helping people, um, you know, meeting people where they're at and helping them to figure out what they can what's possible for them and what they can do to make and sustain change. Um, definitely within nursing skill set. And let's own that. You know, I really want to encourage nurses to, to, to do this. Um, a couple of years ago, this buzzword appeared, patient-centered care. And where, where it first came across my desk was in the American Diabetes Association um, guidelines for for the management of I don't know treatment and management of or care of people who have diabetes and patient centered care was right there in the title and I, I had to 
it, it just makes me laugh a little bit. Like, what the heck are we doing if care isn't patient-centered? And maybe the medical, maybe that's new to the medical profession. <laughs> um, that, but and and I don't, I'm not, I don't mean to be making disparaging remarks about physicians at all. I, I will make disparaging remarks about professional organizations um, because I, I have some issues around um, how these standards of care are written and, and you know, where the the authors are, are, they take a lot of money from, from industry and they're influenced by industry in many ways. And these organizations, you can't go to a conference without being overwhelmed by um, pharmaceutical company information giveaways, continuing ad sponsored by, by CMA. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. So anyway, there's the word patient-centered care. And, you know, that is central to nursing. <laughs> we always put the person in, in the center of care. Um, it was never about anything else, about, you know, getting the patient to comply or be adherent to what we thought was best. It was always about, you know, the, the patient is the most important thing. And, and it's not just about disease treatment. It's about quality of life. And um, it's, I, I, that's why I just think nutrition is such a central piece of this. You know, we're constantly eating, right? And, and it, it's central to all of these chronic diseases now. So it just makes sense that it should be part of, of nursing. So how did you get introduced to plant-based nutrition? It, it wasn't part of my undergraduate education. I was um, working as a nurse practitioner in an in internal medicine practice. I, was, I first started there as a diabetes educator, and then I said to the docs, you know, I'd like to go back to school. I have a master's in community health, but I'd really like to get the additional coursework to be an adult primary care nurse practitioner. And, and at the time, they didn't have any NPs working for them, but they always liked to have the latest of everything. So they encouraged me to do that and told me they'd have a position for me when I was done. So that's what happened. Um, I finished school and I shifted from doing diabetes education in the office to <clears throat> doing adult primary care. And I did that for a year. And at the end of the year, I went to the docs and I said, you know, I love working for you. But I am not a generalist. I'm a specialist. And I, I really just want to see people with diabetes. And they said, good, because we are really tired of telling you which antibiotic for this acute disease or which, you know, whatever. It, it, it just, you know, I didn't want to know everything about everything. I just wanted to keep my specialty in diabetes. And we had a dietitian in our office. And she actually followed a vegan diet. And to be honest, I thought she was kind of crazy. I just couldn't imagine doing it myself. So I couldn't imagine doing it for my patients. And I'd learned all of the stuff about carbohydrate counting and portion control. And, you know, that's what you learn about diabetes care. And, and um, as a diabetes educator, though, mm -hmm. those were the, you know, the, the rules, right? And in my practice, I treated diabetes really aggressively, you know, with the support of these doctors. We, we use multiple injections of, of insulin. Um, we did insulin pumps, which at the time in primary care, you know, usually you had to go to an endocrinologist, but 
know, the docs I worked with were supportive of me doing that. And we got good numbers. Um, we, I was able to collect data on, I don't know, 750 patients. And we had an average A1C of 6.4%, which is really good. Um, however, I found that my patients, although they were pleased with their good numbers, they didn't appreciate having to take all of these medications. And they had side effects from the medications. You know, they experienced low blood sugar. They experienced weight gain. Um, they had the expense of medications. And it was around the time that the big three automakers in Michigan were having financial difficulties and they started cutting benefits to workers. And all of a sudden, my patients didn't have good health care insurance anymore and they couldn't afford their medications. And they were um, looking for alternatives and they were looking to me, you know, what, what could I offer them beyond medications? And I had a, a bit, a, a real serendipitous experience. Um, I went to a conference on what was called Nurse Practitioners Profit and Profitability. This will tell you where my, my head was at at the time. You know, how can I be a, more of an asset to my practice financially? Were you being, um, you know, told that that was important? You by oh, by, sure. by administrators, sure. so that, so it wasn't yeah. it wasn't just it wasn't just like a thought that popped into your head. This is this is what being a uh, you know a conscientious employee of a healthcare organization means is to be always always thinking about the the bottom line, right? It, it does. It absolutely does. And and I will say, my physician colleagues that I work for were, have always been great about giving me time with patients. Um, in my practice, I've never been required to see patients in 10 or 15 minute increments. You know, there's a recognition that diabetes takes more time. Um, but I wanted to figure out, you know, how can I make this sustainable for the practice? So I was really curious as to what other nurse practitioners were doing. So at the time, I had been following a plant-based diet myself for about six months. Um, I had some concerns about cholesterol. I had some concerns about weight. When I started eating a plant-based diet, um, I saw benefits, but was something that was really remarkable for me is I'd had chronic joint pain since I was in my, excuse my, my early 20s. I had chronic joint pain, and I'd been worked up for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, and nobody could find anything wrong with me, but I was told I had bursitis in my hips, and I was given gold injections on more than one occasion. I was on Vioxx or Celebrex, and, you know, all these drugs that I was joint pain. And about four weeks into eating a plant-based diet, I noticed it wasn't achy all the time anymore. Hmm. So for me, it was really dramatic. You know, oh, there's something to this. And, and that was now 14, 15 years ago. And, and that problem is completely resolved for me. So, um, that was a real fortunate side effect. So anyway, I go to this conference and um, there's, I don't know, 150 nurses in this room and um, lunch is provided. And I sit down at the table and I say to the wait, wait person, um, by the way, do you have any vegan or vegetarian option available? And she brings me this beautiful plate of food. It's roasted vegetables and little um 
tofu triangles with grill marks in it. It's beautiful. So I eat my lunch and at the end of the day, I go out and I talk to the conference planners and I say, the conference was wonderful, but my lunch was spectacular. Hmm. And a woman said, oh, you got my lunch. I was new at this. I didn't know you need to order in advance. (laughs) And apparently I had eaten your lunch. Anyway, I ended up going to dinner with her. I took her out to dinner. And she told me about the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. So I reached out to Neil Barnard and I said, you know, I've been doing this myself and I want to talk to my patients about this, but I'm not really sure how to do it. And Dr. Barnard had just finished his first study on diabetes and hadn't been published yet. And he was really kind to me on the phone. And I wrote him emails about, you know, okay, I've got it figured out for pills, but what about for people who are on insulin? And anyway, we had some nice exchanges. And he said, if you're ever in D.C., come visit. Well, three months later, I had the opportunity to do that. And I spent an afternoon in the physician's committee office. And, oh, my gosh, I was like the kid in a candy store. I couldn't believe I was face-to-face with Neil Barnard and getting to ask him all these questions I had about diabetes and food. And he flipped open his his laptop and he showed me all these PowerPoints on with all the, the charts showing me how this diet was beneficial for people with, with type 2 diabetes. So, so that was it. I was hooked. And I left there. Um, determined that I was going to bring this home and, you know, start doing this with my patients. And Neil was really kind. He allowed me to use his research protocol with my patients in Michigan. And I got my sister-in-law involved and we started doing cooking and nutrition classes for people with diabetes. And the doctors I worked with were really skeptical (laughs) at the beginning, um, but they saw people get better. And we did three series of classes where we, we taught people how to cook and, you know, taught them how to make these changes. And um, I remember having one guy who was supposed to have surgery for sleep apnea. And he, uh, you know, also had uncontrolled diabetes and needed insulin. And he, through the course of the eight-week class, lost 20 pounds and didn't need to have that surgery. And, you know, that was kind of the, the beginning. Oh, my gosh, this works. Um at the same time, I am just so resentful of the money that the pharmaceutical industry has and the way that they target doctors and now they target nurse practitioners. Um, and, and I will tell you that before my eyes were open to all of this, that I was on the receiving end. I was wined and dined by the pharmaceutical companies and I was taken, sent to nice conferences, and I was a thought leader, and I was paid to speak to my peers about the latest medication for diabetes. And it was um, um, something, not something I'm proud of. Well, so, so I'm, I'm really curious yeah. about that, because one, one of the things that you, know, you see is you know Al, Al Gore's um, famous borrowing of I think Upton Sinclair's uh, statement about an inconvenient truth, right? That if you're getting mm-hmm. paid by something, it's very hard to see the negatives. And I've certainly experienced that many times in my own life, where all of a sudden the thing that was you know now allied with me in some sort of way that was benefiting me, I was going to give it the benefit of the doubt 
every chance I got. What what do you think enabled you to break free from that spell? Yeah, so a couple things. You know, first was a recognition that for my patients, not only were they having problems with all these medications, the cost, the side effects, um, whatever, but it wasn't a cure. You know, I had patients who had good numbers who still developed kidney failure and needed dialysis. I had patients who still had heart attacks. I had a patient go blind. Um, So I saw that there's something wrong here. You know, we're being taught that the goal is tight control. The goal is get these numbers down. You know, have people jump through all these hoops, check their blood sugar, take their shots, carry treatment for low blood sugar, take a bag full of medications every day. You know, that that's the, the, um, the yellow brick road. <laughs> and, and it wasn't working. So that was the first part of it for me. And then the other side of it was, oh my gosh, lifestyle works. And there's no side effects. And it doesn't cost a lot of money to do this. And, huh, I can't tell by looking at my patients who is who will and will not be interested in this. Um, I had patients from really all levels of education, all walks of life. I learned that I needed to offer this to everybody, to not have any judgment about who will and who will not do it and be successful with it because people were always surprising me. Mm-hmm. So, and then finding colleagues um, that, you know, that was the other thing that was really important was, um, you know, stumbling upon the physician's committee was life changing for me. And once I, once I knew that <clears throat> there were other people doing this, um, you know, that gave me encouragement to, to do it. And um, I, I feel really grateful that I've, that, that, that that's the path I'm on because I have, um, nurse practitioner colleagues who I see, um, who have maybe gone, (laughs) can I say they've gone to the dark side. (laughs) There are still lots of opportunities for nurses to be thought leaders, nurse practitioners to be thought leaders, um, and to, benefit from, you know, association with pharmaceutical companies. I just, I, I can't do it. You know, there's right. too many risks with, with drugs and they don't do what, you know, I've been taught they do in diabetes. And well, I'm, I'm imagining would, that um, it may be even more uh, insidious for nurses because, you know, a, a doctor even if they're last in their mm-hmm. class in medical school, they walk out with the white coat and the stethoscope and they are a thought leader to people, right? Mm-hmm. They have that, they mm-hmm. have, whereas nurses, I think, are are much less honored. And so if somebody comes along and tells you, okay, you're a thought leader, we're going to pay you for this, we're going to get give you speaking opportunities. For a nurse, it seems like that, that's even more tempting than for a doctor who already has <laughs> that, that kind of, uh, you know, respect built, baked into their degree. Well, yes. Um, doctors are, are, Certainly, they they do graduate with with those signs of you know that that um, allow them to to get respect. Um, I I think that nurses are are 
respected professionals. You know, we're certainly, we always are, are rated the highest on Gallup polls as the most trustworthy profession. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm really pleased about that. And I, and I have to tell you that um, I have great respect for my nurse practitioner and nursing colleagues. You know, we, we publish a lot. We, we work really hard. We work to educate ourselves. We, I, I think we really believe in lifelong education. Um, but there is, um, definitely, um, pharmaceutical companies are recognizing that nurse practitioners are prescribers and that we're a huge army of people who write scripts. And, you know, unfortunately we're under some of the same, um, pressures that physicians are in practice, right? It's, it's the goal is to, unfortunately, the goal is often to see as many people as you can in a day. And counseling around nutrition is time-consuming. And some people find it very frustrating and hard to do. So if you have a sample closet full of medications and you have limited time with somebody and their numbers are high and you know that they take this drug or this combination of drugs, their numbers are going to get better really easy to do that. Um, In terms of those medication samples, I always thought that it was charity. I, so you also have to know that these drug reps come in and they are your friends. They come into your office. They bring snacks for the staff. They bring um, pens and, you know, whatever else. Um, until recently, they used to provide lunch to the entire staff. Now there's there's rules, and they're not allowed to do that anymore. But um, they they were really sneaky. I can now recognize this. You know, they weren't interested in me. They were interested in a relationship with me so that I would promote their products. And they would arm me with all of these samples with uh, drugs. Well, what I've come to find out, there's a great, um, nurse practitioner colleague, Alyssa Ladd, who who wrote a wonderful article titled something like No Such Thing as a Free Lunch. And it was about, you know, dro- drug companies bringing in lunches to offices. And I come to find out through her work that a huge part uh, that, that the, the budget for these samples does not come out of the pharmaceutical industry's like charity arm or community, you know, whatever. It's marketing. (laughs) It's marketing. And they're not passing out the samples of generic drugs, right? They are, which which are equivalent to the brand name drug. Um, They are providing us with samples of these new drugs that they want to get their money's worth out of when they're new to market before some problem is found. Right. And, and not, um, not only know? that, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in my experience, they're also incredibly attractive human beings. <laughs> oh, they are. And, and, and there's another organization that I, I want to mention. I learned about them a couple of years ago. They're called Farmed Out. P-H-A-R-M-E-D. Huh. Farmed Out. And, um, this was an organization started by Adrian Fu Berman, and um, Dr. Fu Berman was one of the. She was part of a lawsuit against um, a pharmaceutical company that was marketing drug for an off-label benefit, 
And somehow through her and through George Washington University, they took this company um, to court and they won. They got this huge settlement. And with the money, she created this organization. And what Farmed Out does is they teach clinicians, primarily doctors, but other clinicians about drug marketing. And we're hopeful that we can have a generation of clinicians understand that, no, they're not your friends. <laughs> they're, and they, you can go to Farmed Out's website and you can print out an 8 by 12 sheet to hang on your office door that says, no drug reps. <laughs> wow. We, this office will not provide samples, um, which is really, that's how it should be. The samples do not do any good for anybody. They just get people hooked on these expensive drugs that are often um, so, not as safe as, as some of the older things that are available. So the, the, um, the free drugs, the free samples that yeah. you get, do doctors have to declare that for like the, the ProPublica you know, dollars for docs. So if you're, if you're, do, if you're doing um, a, a database oh, search. Oh, no, you don't have to declare it. It's known. The pharmaceutical companies um, keep track of. of no, no, I'm, I'm asking, I, I I'm asking whether I'm asking whether patients can look up that information, because I can look and see if my doctor was given a $10,000 or honorarium right. or given a MacBook Pro to go speak on a cruise about the the you know the drug that that they've used for this indication. I'm wondering mm -hmm. whether if they're getting tens of thousands of dollars a year in free samples for of drugs, <laughs> whether that's whether right, that whether right. I can find that in that database. Yeah, I I honestly don't know. I don't think so. Um, but it's really easy to find out. I mean, you go into any doctor's office, and often, you know, it it happens. You need an antibiotic for something or or whatever. The the helpful physician or nurse practitioner or office staff will provide you with your first dose or a sample bottle because they have it available. And you know, look around the office. Are are there educational materials? Um, turn it over and see, does it have a logo from a pharmaceutical company? Um, look at the TV that's playing in the, in the office. In fact, ask who provided that TV. It may have come from a pharmaceutical company. And those videos you're watching are, are often interspersed with commercials for, for medications. Right. It's, Although not, not everyone is going to feel comfortable taking that kind of a confrontational approach you know it could uh, i'm sure i'm sure whoever's behind the desk the receptionist has never fielded a question like this before and may feel attacked i'd love i'd love oh, i'd love i'd love for this stuff yeah. to be sort of publicly available and searchable online so you can sure. see oh you know because there's i think the I, I looked this up just the uh, the doctor in north carolina who's taken the most money from industry something like 38 mm -hmm. million dollars last in 2015 mm -hmm. you know right. so i'd be very you well, know well, i'm sure I, whenever i, I go I, to I, them that they're going to provide me the treatment that uh, their drug, their their, their employer, uh, you know, makes money off of. Well, I, I'm not sure they're, you know, I'm not sure that all clinicians see this as a negative. You know, as I said, my understanding was if I can show the patient in the office how to give their first insulin injection, because I've got a refrigerator full of insulin pens and I can save them the cost of, you know, buying that first prescription until they've seen the benefit, well, that's kind of a cool thing, right? 
what I didn't realize is that prescription for a box of five insulin pens that, that they're going to fill because now I've given them their first pen, that insulin pen costs between four, I mean, those, that box of five costs between four and $600. You know, no wonder those reps are there all the time, you know, weekly if I need them to be there stocking that refrigerator. So I will say they don't call on me anymore because I, I, I now am, am all about the right. less expensive medication. Right. So hey, bef- they're not my friends anymore. Yeah. Before, before I let you go, I, I wanted to ask yeah. you about your work with Native American groups and diabetes. Sure. Be happy to talk about that. Um, so I, um, uh, let's see. In... 2006, Dr. Bernard published his first study, a big study on, on diabetes, showing that a plant-based diet um, was as beneficial as many first-line drug treatments for lowering A1C and improving cholesterol and weight loss, all, all this good stuff, right? And he was all over the place talking about it. And he happened to be on a radio show in the Southwest, and he was talking about what the diet was that people in the study were eating. And a woman called in and said, it sounds like what you're describing is a diet that was the diet enjoyed by Native Americans. It's called the Three Sisters. And that is corn, beans, and squash. And those are foods that were grown together and eaten together because they, they benefit each other in, in the soil. You can, the the squash spreads out and prevents weeds from growing and the corn stock grows up and the beans can wrap around that. And anyway, and they're delicious together, right? So it got Neil thinking about um, talking to Native Americans. And he um, contacted the um, Department of Health with the Navajo Nation, and they have an office called Special Diabetes Program. And he was invited to come out and talk about his research and learn about the traditional diet. And I remember being at a physician's committee nutrition meeting and him saying, who wants to be part of this work with me with Native Americans? And since I have diabetes in my job title, I thought, well, I should really raise my hand. But I had no experience prior to that and didn't really know much about, I knew Native Americans had a high rates of diabetes, but that was about the extent of my knowledge. So I had this great privilege of traveling with him to, um, to New Mexico and Arizona, and we did a couple of education programs, um, and we um, he spent time with special diabetes, and there was an exchange of information, and then following that, we, we set up these programs in three different cities for Native American clinicians and people who care for Native Americans, and we just hung up signs and waited to see who would come, and there was lots of interest, and we did one program with the Navajo, um, and had um, there was there was interest, and they invited us back to teach an eight week course on plant based nutrition. And I'll never forget the experience of sitting in a room with I think there were eight eight Navajo people who worked for the Navajo Department of Health and me, and we were talking about what are we going to call this, and we. They said, you can't call it a vegan diet. 
um, because, you know, that's a yuppie word out here. Nobody will do that. And I said, well, what about plant-based? And they said, we don't have a word in the Navajo language for plant-based. It would be the weeds diet. <laughs> and we didn't want to call it the weeds diet. So we kind of want to run around it. Ancestral, no, you know, because they didn't eat it. Is it um, um, <clears throat> a traditional diet? No, that really wasn't. So we landed on food for life. And we worked with the Navajo Nation Human Research Review Board, and we got permission to come onto the Navajo Nation, which you should know is, first of all, Navajo is either the largest or the second largest tribe, depending on whose numbers you look at. 350,000 people now in the Navajo Nation. Um, they are that's, very that, hard hit. By 350,000, you mean on the reservation or, or identify with, with that tribe? That is um, mostly on the reservation, which covers two and a half states, but I believe also includes people um, living in border towns around around the Navajo Nation. Gotcha. But not, not um, say someone who who, who is uh, Navajo um, ancestry who's living in Vermont or. You know something, Howard, I'm not sure. Okay. I, I've heard that number 350,000. And when we go out there, like the town is Window Rock. It's the Washington, D.C. of the Navajo Nation. And there are 4,000 people who live in Window Rock. So uh-huh. they're, they're spread out among, across. Okay. So basically, basically you, you had a population of, of somewhere, somewhere in the hundreds of thousands to, right. to, to, right. work, to work with. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, which seems much more manageable than trying to cure the whole country, right? Let's just focus on this, this one tribe. So, and, and estimates are something like... Um, 16%, maybe even up to 20, 25, 30% of Navajo have type 2 diabetes. It's, it's hard to get a, a good handle on the numbers. and But everybody's got it. I mean, you can ask anybody out there, you know, either they have it or they're at risk for it or their family has it. And Native American teens are the fastest growing demographic group of diabetes. And um, you might wonder why that is, um, because you know, you'd think, well, they have a tradition of living off the land, but that has really changed. And over the last 150 years, when the U.S. government um, moved them off their land and, and dammed up the waters and, and you know, there have been all kinds of, of hardships that, that they've endured. And um, the government, in their infinite wisdom, started providing uh, Native Americans with commodity packages of food. And these were not foods that were familiar at all. They were white flour and white sugar. At one point, it included lard. Um, to this day, it includes a giant block of processed cheese, which the Navajo sometimes refer to as Navajo gold. And you know, I don't have to tell you about the problems of cheese. Um, it also includes canned meat and just not healthy food. So Unfortunately, they got hooked on, on these unhealthy foods, and they have this epidemic of diabetes and cancers and heart disease. There are dialysis units all over the Navajo Nation. Um, they, they, they've just been really hard hit by all of these chronic diseases. And I think that's part of the reason that we were successful is because there's a recognition that what they've currently been trying to do just isn't going far enough. You know, there are a lot of well-meeting healthcare professionals who are working through Indian Health Service and, and other agencies, and they're providing conventional 
diabetes care, which is encouraging exercise, encouraging portion control and carbohydrate limiting, and take these medications. And um, unfortunately, people are still ending up with loss of vision and amputations and and other problems. And um, tremendous problems with weight. Um, And there's definitely recognition that, you know, this isn't native or traditional. So um, with our program, we got approval from the review board and we started teaching these classes and um, there was a mixed response. Um, Some people were interested, some people were not. But among those who were interested, they've stuck with it and they took it home and they shared it with their families. And we've had some wonderful successes, really against the odds. Um, we, first of all, we collaborated as much as we could to develop some materials because we recognized really quickly teaching a class of 20 or 30 people at a time wasn't going to go very far. So we worked with nutritionists to develop a, a curriculum, lessons, handouts, um, various materials. Um, we filmed a, some videos and which are now available on our website. We have a site called nativepowerplate.org and you can see the materials that have been developed. Um, the nutritionists of special diabetes got together and they took PCRM's power plate, you know, our plate that is a graphic that shows fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and they made it their own. Um, and they took, they, they, got together, they took photographs of foods, and they worked with the graphic designer of, of the Navajo Nation, and they developed um, the Diné power plate, and Diné is the word for Navajo in, in their language. Uh-huh. And um, we've now put that on brochures, and, and they're, they're sharing that and teaching about that. Um, you know, there, there have been challenges. There's been a lot of turnover in, in terms of the people who we've trained, and in terms of leadership. And um, what about, people, yeah, what, what, what about the accessibility to plant-based whole foods? Are these, are, I'm, I'm sort of imagining uh, food deserts, right, where if, yeah, you, know, you can yeah. get your white flour and your white sugar and your lard and you can drive off and, and there's fast food restaurants and liquor stores and, and convenience stores. Um, what's, you know, what, what is the state of, let's say I want to make, you know, the plate of, you know, beans and whole grains and fresh fruits and vegetables. Is, is it available is, yeah. and, and is it yeah. affordable? Well, um, the short answer is yes. Um, those foods are, are available and becoming more and more available. Um, there's lots of efforts, to, initiatives to increase gardening and to um, offer more farmers markets and to um, support uh, stores and to encourage people to um, um, buy more fruits and vegetables. In terms of beans, there have always been beans available, but unfortunately they're looked upon as peasant food. And so we've had to overcome that. <laughs> you know, we've had to, I feel like we need a marketing campaign for, for beans and, mm. and how well, it, important it, they are. Yeah, it reminds me, I think, of a story, I think it was Catherine the Great of Russia, where she was mm-hmm. trying to uh, get the potato to become a staple and the peasants didn't want it because mm-hmm. it was seen as, and she, she like ordered all the nobles to plant potatoes. So, so yeah, the, the, yeah. the peasants would it's, then see right, them as... That, uh, yeah, that that's 
exactly the problem. And I never thought we'd run into that, I, you know, because I thought if people are don't have a lot of money to spend on food, you'd think they'd be buying a lot of beans. But no, unfortunately, meat is really cheap. And you walk into the grocery store in Window Whack and you're greeted by this refrigerated food section from one end of the store to the other that's full of cold cuts and bacon yeah. and sausage and Vienna sausage and spam. Who knew there were so many varieties of huh. spam? Um, yeah, so that's what we've had to overcome. But I have to tell you, the Navajo people are resilient, and and um, they they want to do better for themselves and their families, and they they want to turn this epidemic around. And um, it's just so encouraging to see what people have been able to do. And and if I can just leave you with one really happy story, um, and among many stories. Um, one is that the vice president of the Navajo Nation stood up at a continuing ed program um, at the end of September. We had uh, about 200 Navajo people or people who, clinicians who care for Navajo people in the audience. And he said that he's been following a plant-based diet now for 14 months and he's never felt better and it's improved his running time and his running recovery. And he really was encouraging people to learn about this and to do it. Um, wow. We also have the head of food service at a Navajo hospital in Fort Defiance who took this on herself. Um, she decided she was going to change her diet and she was going to work with her cooks. So 18 cooks at this hospital have been trained to cook plant-based and they now offer a plant-based meal every day. You can go into the Navajo the hospital in Fort Defiance and the Navajo lunch lady will say, would you like the vegan meal? Wow. <laughs> and, and that's available. They serve a thousand meals a day. And they did a employee wellness program. They had 50 employees sign up within an hour. And they, for four weeks, they um, br- brought people together, did education programs, and had lots of successes come out of that. And they're going to repeat that program again. And um, they're continuing to offer these meals. And, um, you know, we're seeing um, opportunities there. Yeah. And, gosh, you know, they're the canary in the coal mine, if, if we can, which is a horrible analogy. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, these are people who are have been so hard hit and um, have the most to gain by by changing yeah. their diet and going right. with foods that are traditional. I love being well, able so, to say to yeah. people, eat so, corn. Corn is good. So let me ask you about that. Just my, my final question before we before we close is that okay. you know most um, ethnic communities, whether it's you know Italian or Cajun or Jewish or African American, they have the foods that they see as traditional. That that you know, like um, I've obviously on the outside, but I've been to uh, powwows where the big thing was fry bread or hunted right. meats. And there's there's a, you know, certainly the Native American um, mythology, um, you know, lionizes hunting and hunters. Have you had have you had difficulty and, and successes in kind of getting them to reconceptualize what their tra- traditional ancestral diet was rather than, you know, buffalo and fry bread? Yeah, so I really have to take those separately. So in terms of of meat, um, you know, there was no doubt that hunting was traditional. Um, I don't think buffalo for the Navajo, but certainly deer and elk and, and small game. And 
gosh, if if that was all they were eating now, you know, if that was the source of their meat, I, I think they'd still be so much healthier. But in reality, um, most of them do very little hunting now, and it's more for special ceremonies that that, that it is cultural significance, um, but it's not a big part of anybody's diet for the most part. Um, what they're eating is lots of fast food meat and and meat that comes on a styrofoam tray at, at the grocery store or, um, you know, meat that they're stacking up on when they go to drive off the Navajo Nation to the big box store and, you know, filling up their freezer with. So, so that part of the tradition, I don't try and argue about, but I try and find places where we agree. You know, we can all agree that your ancestors did not get their meat from a drive-in and that meat that comes in a can, um, processed meat is, is not a health food. So, you know, that's kind of the first thing is sort of a recognition of that. Fry bread has been a much easier sell. So fry bread is kind of like a donut. You take white flour and white sugar and lard traditionally, and you put them together with some water. And, and it was actually a food that helped to sustain Native Americans when they had nothing else. And the government was providing them with these commodities food. They came up with this creative way to turn it, turn these ingredients into something sustainable. And now, yes, if you go to a powwow, you know, you'll, you're, or you, you drive into Indian country and many tribes, you'll see people selling fry bread. Um, but they also recognize that that's a newer food. That's not something that goes back many years. And, and I'll tell you a happy story with that. One is um, we've worked with a Native American chef. She's from the Kiowa tribe. Her name is Lois Ellen Frank. And um, she's developed a no-fry fry bread <laughs> recipe. And you can find that on our website, um, Navajo, I mean, I'm sorry, nativepowerplate.org. But the other thing is I'm seeing the culture shift. And a great example of that is every year on the Navajo Nation, there is the Miss Navajo pageant. And the, many tribes hold these competitions. And the winner goes to a national competition, an international competition, actually, the Gathering of Nations, which is held every April in Albuquerque. Um, but anyway, on the Navajo Nation, among there are different competitions that these young women go through. And um, one is they have to be fluent in the Diné language. Um, and they have to... Um, be able to um, butcher a sheep. Unfortunately, that's still one of the things they have to do. Well, until last year, they had to prepare fry bread. And that, um, the the Navajo government, I, I'm not exactly sure who I want to give credit to Vice President Nez. Um, I think that was under his jurisdiction, um, but they got rid of the fry bread competition. So things are changing. And um, I, I'm, I want to give credit to the brave Navajo men and women who have embraced learning about a plant-based diet and have tried it without the supports that many of us enjoy in, in other parts of the country and are um, continuing to, to talk about it and are creating these wonderful success stories that 
I know are going to inspire other Navajo people and other Native Americans and, and really anybody who is worried about diabetes and food and health. Wow, that's, that's awesome. So uh, for people who want to follow you and uh, find out more about you and maybe have you come speak, is there a, uh, do you have a web address that you send people to? You know, I'm happy to share my email address. Um, I, I can be found through PCRM's website, which is physicianscommittee.org or pcrm.org. And we're in the process of um, redoing our, our website. And I think the new launch is this week. So I'm not sure what it looks like today, but it's going to change shortly. But my email address is really easy. It's C is in Carolyn, trap, like trap door with two P's, P-R-A-P-P, at org, And I'd be happy to talk to anybody who is um, interested in any of the topics we've talked about. I'd love to talk to groups of nurses, especially, um, and and anywhere I can talk about diabetes and, and share these inspirational stories, I'm happy to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you for, for your generosity in, uh, in making your email available. I, uh, I know people will, will treat it with respect. And thank you so sure. much for all the work you are doing and have done over these decades and for taking the time today. Thank you, Howard. Back at you. I appreciate all of the good that you are bringing into the world. And I enjoy listening to your podcast. And thanks so much for this opportunity. It's been fun to talk to you. Oh, thanks. Well, I just want to say hi to uh, future Carolyn, who's listening to this podcast. And uh, thank her again for <laughs> for taking the time that time before. Uh, thanks so much, Howard. All right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right, that was the 300th episode of the Plant Yourself podcast in the can. I love that 300 and 200 were with people who are not household names. For 100, I asked Rich Roll to honor um, his contribution in getting me podcasting in the first place. He was the one who really lit a fire, gave me tremendous generosity of resources and advice, and encouraged me to put this out into the world. For 200... I spoke with Ken Beckman, you can check that out at plantyourself.com slash 200, about actuarial issues in healthcare. And in, in the uh, nearly two years since that interview aired, Ken has become very involved with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and other organizations, Plantrition Project, in, in creating an economic rationale for lifestyle medicine for plant-based nutrition. So he's really become a key player. And today, number 300, Caroline Trapp, of course, doing incredible behind-the-scenes work, quietly empowering a huge profession to make a huge difference in the lives of millions of Americans and, of course, around the world. So it's a little early, probably, to plan uh, number 400, but at, at one a week, that's uh, less than two years away, so uh, before 2021, we should get there if I can sustain the podcast. And one of the ways that, that you guys can really help me sustain the podcast is by becoming a patron, by pledging a monthly amount, whether it's $1 or 2 or 3 or 18 or 36 or 54 uh, whatever you feel you can comfortably contribute and what you feel like this is worth to you and to the world. I believe I'm close to a $700 a month in patronage. 
which is getting close to uh, half of what it costs me to produce the podcast. So I'm still uh, shouldering the lion's share, but people are really stepping up. And honestly, without that 700 a month, both in terms of actual numbers, in terms of what that buys for me, and in terms of the psychology of that kind of support, all the people, because it's a lot of people. When you listen to the list of, that I read at the end of the podcast, you know, it's tiny donors. It's not people giving two, three hundred dollars a month. And knowing that there's a crowd out there that values my work enough to pay for it when they can get it for free, when they don't have to, is a huge psychological boon for me. So if you would like to help, you can just go to plantyourself.com, scroll down on the right sidebar, you'll see a button that says Patreon, and you can click that and make an ongoing contribution, a pledge to be just taken out of your account every month. And when you do so, you also get access to about three dozen healthy habit huddles, um, plus other occasional goodies. Really, the, the point is not to give you lots of extra goodies. Uh, kind of the point is to make everything free for everybody. Um, so if that's something that you value, the fact that this podcast is freely available, the fact that the book that I wrote with Josh Lajani, Sick to Fit, is freely available, I don't want money, I don't want economics to become a burden to someone getting this information and incorporating it into their lives. So if it's not an obstacle for you, if you could afford to pay for this stuff, if I charged for it, then you can help make it free for others by becoming a patron of the show. Again, plantyourself.com, right sidebar, click the Patreon button, or you can just go straight to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and just search for Plant Yourself. Both ways work. Thank you so much. So you can check out the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com slash 300. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 299 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. If you're new or a longtime listener and you'd like to help the show reach more people, the easiest and best way to do that is to go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever you want to call it, and leave a review, leave some stars, and that will be awesome. I got a couple of reviews to, to read to you that have uh, piled up over the last few weeks. Life Worth Living talks about Emily's story, which was Emily Scamla's story, which appeared a couple of weeks ago. And says, what a powerful podcast. Emily is an inspiration for all of us in pain. She has such a wonderful outlook on living her life. I will share this with everyone. Thank you so much, Life Worth Living. And uh, Emily Scamla, M -Scam, Emmy Scam, wrote um, a nice review of the podcast. Truly inspiring and informative. Thank you for sharing stories of people. Others can find a light in their journey. And thank you, Em, for uh, that review and also for sharing your journey so generously with everyone. Uh, J.R. Butler, 73, writes, Great show, terrible audio. I want to listen to your podcast, but the sound is awful. How can it be that bad? Well, I'm not sure. The only thing I can think of is that perhaps uh, occasionally I uh, scratch the microphone with my fingers while I'm uh, trying to speak. No, honestly, I have no idea. Um, if you're listening to this, J.R. Butler 73, let me know which episodes you are speaking of, and I will go listen and see if I can figure it out. And apologies for, uh, for assaulting your ears uh, inadvertently. Obviously, I'm trying to make this as high quality as possible. And STT Kilda writes, Howard is the best. I love this podcast. Howard keeps me on track in diet, exercise, and life. This is a must listen if you want a long and happy and healthy life. Thank you so much, St Kilda. All right, in garden news, we are hoping that we still have kale underneath the seven inches of snow 
that uh, has uh, buffeted our part of the world. It's another the third storm of the century we've had in the past three months. So uh, I, I need to look up century in the dictionary because it doesn't mean what I think it means, apparently. And today's run looked more like trying not to fall on my ass in the ice. So it was about four and a half miles in 60 minutes, but there was a lot of crunching and climbing. So uh, I'm hoping it was more or less uh, functionally equivalent to a regular jog, hoping the uh, the ice will melt and I can go back to, to regular running. You know, now that I brag publicly and sick to fit about being a, a runner and being uh, pretty decent at it, I uh, I have to maintain. I can't just rest on those laurels. All right, so let's talk about gratitude. Big thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace, as this show's theme music. Check out willridenour.com for more of his gorgeous chorus music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jean Wheeler, Alan Kelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Dean Ahern, Jen Blakonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolan, Nova Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina Julian, Roland Stu, Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rumbus Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Nunet, Benham, Gila, Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindman, Rancho Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Allen, Molly Levine. The Inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Lynn Dayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan, Wakani Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Lakoski, Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jennifer Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Tibbet, Joshua Sommermeyer. Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lennon, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Deanne Bishop, Bill Durielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Tricia Adams, and Ian Kramer for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mauro, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, with Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harperson, Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. 
Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dave McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.